Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 as we continue our series on Matthew 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Under the chair in front of you, there's a black pew Bible. It looks like this. Go ahead and grab that, and you can turn to page 855. Pages 855 and 856. You can turn there and you'll see the story of Jesus' childhood or his birth, really. Not quite his birth. A little bit after his birth, but still his infancy. Um, So we'll read this story and then we will think about it and meditate on the main goal of the text and its application to our lives. All right, one more Christmas story here. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Hear then the word of the living God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully. For the child, when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing this, after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and falling to their knees, They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for Jesus Christ, our King. We thank you that we can worship him freely here in this land, and we pray that more in this land and around all the nations of the world would worship him from all ethnic people groups. So, Father, open our hearts. We don't want to worship you only with our our eyes and with our lips and with our presence. We want to worship you with our hearts. So help us not to worship you with our hearts far from you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us and enable us and soften our hearts and transform us and give us a hunger and a receptivity to your word. And then we pray, Lord, that we would see and taste that you are good. So help us now to see the glory of King Jesus, for apart from you, we can do nothing. We pray for our children's class that even there, you would be awakening worship, true worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are a worshiper. Christian or non-Christian, 
you have not stopped worshiping since 2018 began. I know we're in our second month of the year, but you are a worshiper. You worship all the time, and you are a nonstop worshiper. We are made as humans in God's image to worship. The question is, who or what are you worshiping at any given time? There's no on and off switch for worship. You can just redirect it. So who are you worshiping? Who are you really worshiping? Here, the Magi seek to worship Jesus, and Herod intends and proclaims that he wants to worship Jesus. So who are we worshiping? We have many obstacles in our lives that hinder us and block us from worshiping Jesus. The devil, the world, the difficulties in our lives, the trials and the the burdens we face, uh, distractions from other things, and even other good gifts from God that God gives us can actually distract us and block us and hinder us from actually worshiping Jesus. So my fear And the question I ask myself and I want you to ask is, what if we end up committing spiritual adultery? That's another way of talking about false worship in the prophets. Spiritual adultery, where God is our spouse, God is our husband, and we as the bride cheat on God and commit adultery without even fully realizing it. Cheating on Jesus. Like Peter, who thought he was honoring Jesus, When he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. My Father in heaven told you about that. And then Jesus said, yeah, so praise God, Peter. You got it right. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to go to the cross to die. And then Peter says, over my dead body, you are not going to that cross. You are the king. You're supposed to reign. You will not die. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're not setting your heart on God's concerns, but man's concerns. Peter thought he was worshiping Jesus or worshiping God, right? He, he was like zealous and passionate for the glory of God, right? Well, not according to Jesus. He, you thought his heart was set on God. His, Jesus said, your heart is set on man's concerns and the, and the things of man. And so what if we, like Peter, think we're worshiping God with our lives and our hearts and our voices and our time and our money, and we're actually not worshiping him? Is it possible that we are thinking about man's concerns and dishonoring Jesus with our lives, even though at the same time we are mistakenly thinking we're worshiping him? Certainly possible. Now, Matthew worshiped Jesus falsely and correctly. And so he's a good guide to tell us how we should be worshiping God. He knows the struggle. And so he writes Matthew 2, 1 through 12 to communicate the story of Jesus' birth and, and some prophecies that are fulfilled, but also to help us truly worship Jesus. All right, so let me just recap the story. I already read you the story, but let me tell you the story, and then we'll, we'll go through it and draw some lessons out. So it begins with wise men or magi, wise men from the east, coming, to, coming around the Fertile Crescent to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, because they have come to see the one who is born king of the Jews. If you want to find the king, you go to the king's palace. Where is the king's palace? In Jerusalem. So you go there to the palace, to King Herod, and you can imagine the Magi going through the villages and towns saying, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Where is he who's born king of the Jews? Where's the palace? Can you show me the direction? Because I'm looking for the one who is born king of the Jews. Word would spread in the town, in Jerusalem, in the city, that there are three not three, I made a mistake there, not even three. There are magi, there are visitors from the east, wise men, who are looking 
for the one born king of the Jews. And they say that we're looking for him because we saw his star rising or his star appeared. And that's why we have come. Now, wise men, these wise men um, don't know where he's supposed to be born. They just assume Jerusalem because king of the Jews, that's where the king is. So they're excited and hopeful to see him. To their surprise, they got to the palace and nobody knew what they were talking about. And there was no celebration going on. There was no baby heir apparent that um, people were celebrating as the next king. So eventually this reaches King Herod's ears, the, the current king of the Jews, the king there, placed there. Really, he's a governor, but he has the title of king from, um, from the Roman emperor and senate. So there he is, King Herod, and he hears about it, it says in verse 3, and he was deeply disturbed because he didn't have any babies recently. <laughs> if there's someone born the king of the Jews and it's not my baby, that means someone else is going to be the king and usurp my throne, or at least my dynasty. I thought it's going to go through my, you know, I'm the king, and my kids are going to, my son's going to be king, and my, and my grandson. But if, you, if someone else is born king of the Jews and not my son, that's, that becomes a threat to King Herod. And so Herod is disturbed by this, and it says all Jerusalem was deeply disturbed with him. We'll talk about why in a second. But they were disturbed, and so he wanted to know, where's this king going to be born? My rival, my enemy, my born enemy. Where is he going to be born? So he goes to the chief priests and the religious teachers of the day, the scribes of the people, and asks them, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they say, well, if you just read your Bible, Herod, you're supposed to be the king of the Jews, and as Jews, we know our Bible. So Micah 5.2, so they turn to Micah 5.2, and they say, here, in the, prophet, the prophet said in Micah that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, okay. So then Herod calls the wise men back and says, okay, guys, here's the deal. He's going to be born. Well, before I tell you where he's going to be born, I want to know from you exactly how long have you seen that star in the sky? What's the exact time that star appeared? Well, they tell him, presumably they tell him what time the star appeared, and he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you. Go to Bethlehem. The prophets say, 700 years ago, the prophets wrote that he would be born in Bethlehem. So go look for him in Bethlehem. And when you find him, Tell me, send word back to me, come back to me, let me know where he is so I can go there too, so I can worship him just like you guys are going there to worship him or honor him, pay homage to the king. So they go to Bethlehem and when they get there, they follow the star and the star kind of shows the exact place, the house perhaps, shining down on where they were going to be. And so um, they, they end up there and they, they, um, they go, they find it, well, and they're still looking for, for the place. And so they find the house where, where the baby is. They see Mary and Jesus. They bow down, and they start to pay homage to a baby. Not any bigger than that baby, Adonai, right there. So little child walking through, perfect time. Little child, you know, two years or less old, probably walking, certainly maybe crawling by this time. And you have some strangers from a foreign land come and start bowing down in front of your child. Kind of strange, but Mary's seen a few strange things these last few months. So she's not too surprised by it. So there they are. They bow down and they start opening gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king, valuable, expensive gifts. And they give it to them. And then, and then as the wise men are there, they have a dream. I guess they stay overnight. They have a dream, and in a dream, they're warned, don't go back to Herod. Go home by another way. 
So they end up going home by another way, and that is the story. So they go to Jerusalem looking for the king. Herod is disturbed. Herod wants to know where, where the baby's born. Baby's going to be born in Jerusalem. Herod sends him to Jerusalem, saying that he's going to worship them, the baby as well. They get, to, they get to Bethlehem. They find the baby. They worship the baby or honor the baby. There's a little bit. You could translate it either way. Honor the baby. They give gifts, and then they go home another way, not, through, not back to Herod. And so Herod is kind of waiting for them, and they never come back. What's the main idea of the story? What's the main goal? What does God want us to get out of it? Here's what God wants us to get. God wants us, very simply, to worship Jesus. Worship King Jesus. That's the main idea, okay? Worship King Jesus. And to worship King Jesus, we need to learn from the wise men and from Herod how to, from the wise men, how to worship Jesus, and from Herod, how not to worship Jesus, okay? So we want to worship Jesus truly. We don't want to think we're worshiping Jesus and falsely worship him. So we need help from the wise men and from Herod, from this story. So we'll unfold a story that shapes our worship in three ways, okay? Here are the three ways that this story shapes our worship. Number one, we worship Jesus by seeking, by seeking him. Number two, we worship by honoring him. And thirdly, we worship by obeying him, okay? We worship by seeking him, <clears throat> We truly worship Jesus by honoring him, and we truly worship Jesus by obeying God and furthering the cause of our king. We're going to spend the mo- most of our time on the first point, because the first point is covering the first nine verses. Okay, so we're going to stay in the first nine verses. For the majority of the sermon, points two and three are going to be much shorter, yet there'll still be some things there for us to meditate on. Okay, so number one, first way we're going to worship Jesus is to seek God's king, verses one through nine. Seek God's king. Look at verse two. Excuse me. Look at verse two. What, what What do they want to do? Where is he who is born king of the Jews, say the Magi? For we saw a star in it at its rising, and we have come to what? What are they there for? To what? To worship him, to honor him, to pay homage to a king. That doesn't mean they knew that he was God. But um, they, maybe they did, I don't know. But they certainly come to honor him as a king, and that's the same word for worship, and we Christians know that Jesus is God, so that's why we kind of lean that way. But they come to honor him as the new king. So the wise men go to Jerusalem. How did they know? Here's my question. They go to Jerusalem looking for the one born king of the Jews. These wise men are coming from far away, from a distant land in the east. They're coming to worship a foreigner, they're foreigners coming to another land, lots of money that they're going to give, lots of valuables they're going to give, and they spend a lot of time and effort, probably even leaving their own families, to come to worship this king. How did they know that a king was born? How do they know the king of Jews was born? They saw a star, right? They saw his star. That's what they say. We saw his star, and it's rising. And so that's why we're here. Now, here's the question. How did they know to look for a star? <laughs> Gigi has an answer. How, yeah, how did, how did they know? Because God told them, how did they know to look for a star? They followed... Now, these guys, um, we don't know exactly. So I'm gonna, we're going to be doing some, a little bit of guesswork here, okay? How did they know to follow the star? Um, Connie and Carrie and I had a conversation about this. And uh, lots of her theory is actually what I would probably guess is a good theory to think about. So, um, so she instructed me on this, partly. So how... How did they know? They, they probably, they're called magi, right? Magi are mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 2. So if you turn to Daniel chapter 2 in your Bible, just turn to the left, to Daniel chapter 2, flip a few pages there. 
If you get to Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, you went too far. Okay. Daniel chapter 2. You have Daniel interpreting the, G- the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in the east. Okay. We don't know this is, this is a for sure connection, but this is the best shot we have, at least from the Bible. It could be other things, too. The Bible's not specific on it. But Daniel interprets Herod, uh, Herod King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then in Daniel 2.48, look at what it says in Daniel, oh, Daniel 2.47. Then the king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed the God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you're able to reveal this mystery. Look at verse 48, Daniel 2. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men. Magi in Greek. The magi of Babylon in the east. Okay, so there there are magi in the east. And we know that Daniel wasn't just the wise men of Babylon because when it moved over to the the next kings, you know, uh, Daniel was still there with, with Darius in Daniel 6 with the lion's den. That wasn't even Babylon anymore. And yet he's still there as one of the wise men. And so the Magi wasn't just with the Babylonian Empire, with the Persian Empire. Did the Magi continue with the Greek Empire? Did they continue past that? Was there still a, a tradition of wise men? We don't know. But at the end of the day, Daniel was the chief governor for a time of some wise men in the East, 600 years before Jesus was born. And you know what Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9? Now, if you're one of the... Some magi were jealous of Daniel, but some were probably friends. And if they read Daniel 9, look at Daniel 9 verse 25. Or Daniel 9 24. Uh, Let's just go 25. Daniel 9 25. Know and understand, this is one of Daniel's prophecies. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's 445 B.C. Until an anointed one. What's another word for anointed one? Messiah. Until a Messiah, the ruler. So from the issuing of the decree to go back to Jerusalem, 445 BC, that's about 150 years after Daniel's time or so. So from the time of the decree to the time of the Messiah, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is what? 69, so 69 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat in difficult time, but in difficult times, but in difficult times. Verse 26, after those 62 weeks, so after the seven and then the 62, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be what? Cut off and have nothing. So if you calculate 70 times seven, that's 490 years from 445 BC, you get right up, up, up until about the death of Jesus. So, it's, it's, so the timeline there, if Daniel was the head of the Magi, he's writing down prophecies like this, and you know that 490 years from the decree... There's going to be a Messiah who's going to be cut off. That's about 30 or 33 AD. Well, if he's going to live some sort of life before he gets cut off. So in other words, there was a frenzy in Israel about false messiahs and where's the real Messiah. But even hundreds of miles in the east, there's still a group of magi counting down from the decree 490 years when the anointed one will be cut off because the leader of the magi, Daniel, wrote in a book that these things were going to happen. So my point here is that there was already great expectation from them that sometime in our lifetime, the Messiah, the anointed one, could be born. But it says nothing about a star. um, Darren was right when he said, well, they knew because of the star. Well, if this says nothing about the star, how did they know to look for a star? Now, we're really going on perhaps, maybe here, okay? 
Perhaps maybe, so we're, this is already perhaps maybe that they're following Daniel in the tradition. Another perhaps maybe is Balaam, who was another prophet in the east, who was popular and even known by other, other parts of the region. Balaam was a known prophet, we found in archaeology. He was a known prophet in the east. Balaam had a prophecy in Numbers 24. So if you look at Numbers 24, 17, it's near the beginning of your Bible. Keep your finger in Matthew, but Numbers 24, 17. If you don't have time to turn there, don't worry, I'll, I'll read it to you and you can listen. It says this. It says, Balaam is prophesying about Israel and he says this. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. So it's far away. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. Who holds a scepter? A king, right? A king holds a scepter and this star will rise from Israel, the Jews. Okay? He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. Edom will become a possession. I read those things because those are going to be important. Smashing the head. Does that sound like anything in the Bible to you? Smashing the head of the enemies. And Edom will become a possession. Edom is going to be very important in a second. Okay. So they knew a star was going to rise, probably. I mean, I, we don't know if it's from this prophecy. But presumably, if these, if these biblical connections are legit, then Daniel being the Magi and having a timeline, there's great expectation. Balaam's prophecy about a star, that could also be why. Or it could be other things as well. But that's, that's the best biblical um, piecing together what could, what might be going on here. So the wise men go and they say, we see the star, we want to find him and worship him. They don't know where to go. They ask Herod. Herod asks his advisors, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And what do they say? Where is he going to be born? Where? Bethlehem, right? And that's a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and verse 4. So in Micah chapter 5, you could turn there if you want or just listen. Micah 5, 2 says this. Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. So a ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, but listen to this. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He existed since ancient times. That's strange. We would say, well, it's because he's God. That's why. Um, and then verse 4 says, He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. So they're looking for a king who's going to rule the whole world to the ends of the earth. And so here he is in Bethlehem. They find the place. This prophecy was 700 years before, the exact city that the ruler would be born in. And so he, this, this, this king is also going to shepherd people. Isn't Jesus the good shepherd? He's the good shepherd in John 10. In 1 Peter 5, he's the chief shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he's the great shepherd. In Revelation 7, verse 17, he's the shepherd who will guide his people to the springs of, of the waters of life. So Jesus is this shepherd and he's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of who? City of David. Okay, the city of David. Why is that important? David was given a promise that the king would come from his line, right? Not only that, didn't David have humble beginnings? When David was in Bethlehem and he was anointed as king in Bethlehem, he was the, I think the seventh or eighth. He might be the eighth. He was the eighth brother and the youngest of all the brothers. And Samuel went there to anoint the king, and he's like, oh man, this guy for sure is the king. He's big, he looks, he's handsome, this guy's going to be the king. No, not him. Next brother, next brother, next brother. All of David's brothers, and then 
all seven, and God's like, nope, nope, no, 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 no. And then Samuel's like, to the dad, he's like, do you have any other kids? I mean, these are all your boys. Do you have any other boys? It's like, oh, we got our youngest one. He's out in the, it couldn't be him, but he's out shepherding. And Samuel's like, bring him over here. So they bring him over. This kid, who's a teenager at this point, who shepherds the sheep, the youngest, the, the baby boy of the family. And God says to Samuel, arise and anoint him. Do not look at what man looks at, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this humble youngest brother in Bethlehem, a no-name city with a no-name family, and the least of the brothers becomes the greatest king in Israel. How fitting for now a baby born in Bethlehem, in a main, lying in a manger, right, when he was born, to be the king who rules to the ends of the earth. But that's fitting. Okay, so, so the, they find out the place, and they head over there. We're in verse 5 and 6 now. They, head, they find out the place, and they find out the 700-year-old prophecy, and they want to go to find the king who's born in the city of David from the line of David. Though I'm not sure the wise men know he's from the line of David. Okay, so then in verse 7, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them for the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can what? Worship him. So let's just talk for a second about false worship. There are three different characters Three different groups of characters here that I want to talk about with false worship because some of us have, well, all of us have different areas in our heart at times of false worship, and we need to see that. We need to repent of that, right? So let's see three different pictures of false worship just from this passage. First, we'll, we'll do Herod last since he's like the big one. So uh, the first group of false worshipers are in verse 5 or verse 4. All the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So they... They find out that wise men come from the east to look for the Messiah. And um, who goes to Bethlehem? Do the wise men or do the, do the chief priests go to Bethlehem? Do the scribes go to Bethlehem? Do they care? They almost seem like it doesn't, like they don't even care, right? Oh, we got some wise men from the east. All right, you want to know the prophecy? Here's the prophecy. It says it's in the book. And then they go on and they, they go back to lunch. You're like, wait, did you just not hear what you said? These wise men are coming from the east. They've seen the star. The time is, is now drawing near. I mean, if you were there, wouldn't you say, wait, what'd you see? What'd you hear? Wait, can, can I go too? Right? I mean, there, there seems to be a lack of excitement to seek it out for themselves. This first point that I'm saying is, if you're going to worship God, you need to seek him. You need to get up yourself. You need to take initiative. You need to, you need to go find him. You need to go pray. You need to seek God. They're not seeking him. They just read the text and go on with life. Now, if we want to be a little bit more generous to them, perhaps, perhaps Herod didn't tell them that the wise men were there. If we want to be a little bit more generous. It's hard to believe that, though, because these wise men are... Word gets to Herod that these wise men are looking for the king. If the word gets to Herod, not directly from them, they must have been asking a lot of different people. It's, it's really hard for me to believe that the chief priests and scribes did not know that there were wise men from the east. It just seems that they were more apathetic and indifferent. And sometimes that's how we are, even though we say we're Christian. Even though we say we're Christian, yeah, I know the Bible. We can recite verses from the Bible, and yet there is no passion and earnestness and hunger to seek after God. D.A. Carson writes, formal knowledge of scriptures, formal knowledge of the scriptures, Matthew implies, does not in itself lead to knowing who Jesus is. You can know the prophecies. You can know the doctrine. You can recite the gospel and still not be saved. 
You can recite the gospel and say you're a Christian. You can be a member of a church and not really truly worship Jesus. That's possible. You can be apathetic. I can be apathetic. We need to pray against the hardness of our own hearts. Okay, so that's a chief priest. The second group here is the group that's disturbed with Herod in verse 3. Who else was disturbed besides... Herod was deeply disturbed, but who else was in verse 3? All Jerusalem with him. So that doesn't mean every single citizen, but a lot of the, the leaders and those around Herod in Jerusalem were deeply disturbed that wise men came to worship the king of the Jews. Why? Why were they disturbed? Now, there's a few guesses here. One is they were disturbed for Herod because they loved Herod. And if Herod's disturbed, just like when your family member's deeply disturbed, you get disturbed too. I doubt that's the case, that they just deeply loved Herod. Um, They were maybe disturbed because Herod was extremely unstable and paranoid. He was extremely unstable and paranoid. So... um, I sent some of you on the church email. I sent an email about the background to King Herod because I didn't want to get into all the details here in our, in our study this morning. But Herod was erratic and irrational towards the last years of his life. He was paranoid. He killed his favorite wife. He killed her two sons. And eventually, by the end of it, he's going to kill his firstborn son, who's the heir to the throne, because he thought that his son was trying to kill him for it. And maybe his son was. But he was erratic. He was violent. He was paranoid. And he was unstable. So why were they disturbed? Well, if Herod's disturbed and he's unstable and he's the king, what does that mean for all of you sitting around his court? You don't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, we're going to find out next week when we get to the next passage that he's about to slaughter, you know, hundreds of babies in Bethlehem just because it's a threat to his throne. This man is not safe to be around. If he's deeply disturbed, I'm deeply disturbed because I don't know what he's going to do next, right? So here they are. Um, they, they, were, they were scared of what was going to happen. But some might say they're scared they're going to lose their illegitimate power. Maybe that's the case, but I think it's more of this one, that they were scared of Herod. But let's go even deeper. If they're scared of Herod, this means, think about it, because this is us sometimes, they feared Herod more than they feared God. And therefore, they put their hope in Herod's personal peace more than putting their hope in the Messiah they heard was just born. How many of us are more scared of our bosses, what's going on in politics today, what's going on in church, what's going on with family members? We are more fearful of the disturbance in our home and among those that we want to be at peace with than we, can, than we are trusting in the sovereignty of God. Amen. They were deeply disturbed, not just because Herod was unstable, but because they feared Herod more than they feared God. They trusted Herod's personal peace more than they trusted God. And Christians, too easy, we too easily slide into that, don't we? Check where you get, check what, what, what rattles your cage, what gets you off balance, what gets you off center in your life. And ask yourself, why am I off center? Why am I reacting that way? Is it because I'm worshiping Jesus and, and the glory of his name is being trampled on and I got a zeal for his glory? Or is it because I'm scared because my kingdom or, or the, the peace around me is being disturbed and now I'm disturbed and that's why I'm angry? If that's true, and you're angry for non-sin, it's because you're being idolatrous, and you're worshiping something else. You need to repent and worship and seek Jesus. All right, that's the second group. The third group, or the third party here of false worship is the main star of the show, well, at least on the false worship side, King Herod, right? 
Now let's think about King Herod for a second. He was deeply disturbed. I already told you he was a paranoid king who was unstable and who massacred others. He was from Idumea. Idumea. Does that sound like anything? Edom. Idumea is the Greek translation of Edom. He is from Edom. What did we read about the star earlier doing? He's going to have victory over who? Over Edom. So the star that the wise men see is the star who's going to have victory eventually even over Edom. And here's the king of the Jews from Edom. Okay? That's, just, that's significant. So it's mentioned there as being overtaken in Israel's triumph. And even in that, remember we talked about the crushing of the head, the smashing of the head. What did that remind you of? Genesis 3.15 in the garden, where, where the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to fight with each other. And then the serpent, the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike the, the, the offspring or the seed's heel. So this is that crushing idea. But what's, what's, who, who's battling with each other? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. They're fighting with each other. And so here, Herod's attempt to kill Jesus eventually is an expression of the seed. Herod's the seed of who? He's the seed of the serpent. And Jesus is the seed of who? The woman. And so there's enmity here because of a prophecy or a declaration, even in the very beginning of our first grandparents in the garden, that there would always be war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay, and so you see that here. He's from Edom. He's from the seed of the serpent. And not only that, why else is Herod threatened? Because the, the, the Magi are saying, where is he who is born what? King of the Jews. Notice, where is he who was, what's the next word? Born king of the Jews. Was, was Herod born king of the Jews? No, he wasn't. He was appointed king of the Jews. He is not king by birthly right. And so he's almost a false king on the false throne. He shouldn't be the one there. Because he's not in the line of the kings. You have someone who's actually born in the line of kings. And so now Herod is even more threatened because it's not just another rival to the, to the throne, but the one who's rightfully born king of the Jews. And so that also is a, makes Herod disturbed. I want you to notice something here. They, they are, if Jesus is a descendant of David and he has connections with David, Herod is almost like a Saul. A King Saul. Think about it. King Saul was not in the right lineage to the throne. Right? I mean, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. The king was going to come from the tribe of? Judah. Judah. So he doesn't have the right lineage. Herod was jealous, paranoid, and erratic. Wasn't Saul jealous, paranoid, and erratic? I mean, Saul took a spear and tried to kill his own son because his son was protecting David. I mean, that sounds a lot like Herod, right? Um, they, and, then, and then Herod tries to kill Jesus. We're going to learn in the next, next week. Saul tried to kill David several times. And finally, they're both displaced by the rightful king of the Jews. So Saul's sort of like a new Herod, and Jesus is like a new David, in a sense. And so Saul here is deeply disturbed. Why? What is he worshiping? What is Saul worshiping? He's worshiping his throne, his power, and he's not worshiping God and God's son. He's worshiping himself, kind of what Lance led us in confessing um, in our prayer of confession. So here's a question for you, brothers and sisters. Are you deeply disturbed by Jesus claiming to be the king who threatens the throne of your heart? The, threat, the throne of your life, the throne of your relationships, the throne of your money, the throne of your time, the throne of your ambition, the throne of your family? Jesus challenges you. He's the king of, of your life. 
He's the king of all of that. And if you are disturbed by that, it's because you are worshiping another God. You're worshiping your own God. Just think, here's some, here's just some disturbing verses that Christians should freshly feel disturbed by. Matthew 10, 37, 38. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his, cro- his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Does that disturb you? Does that touch on some of your idols? What about Matthew 19, 21? If you want to be perfect, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go and sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Does that disturb you? That your money is not yours and you have no right to rob God of his money? What about Matthew 5, 27 and 30? Do not look. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman would lustfully and has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Cut off your, take out your eye, gouge out, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. It's better to do that than lust and keep on lusting without repenting and turning. Does that disturb you? He's the king of your mind. He's the king of your thoughts. He's the king of your eyes. He's the king of your desires. The king of our money, the king of our relationships. Herod was deeply disturbed because Jesus being the king means he's not the king. And we need to admit as idolaters ourselves that oftentimes we ought to be disturbed and we are disturbed. So we try to find a, a Christianity where I can be Christian and be faithful as a member of my church and still keep my little thrones over here. We try to find a way to compromise and do a little bit of both. And you can't. It's false worship, it's sin, it's idolatry, and we need to repent of that. So those are the three false worships. Let's move on here. So let's continue the story here. So what do the wise men do? They find out the location in verse 7, verse 8. We already covered that. Verse 9 now, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen rising. It led them, and it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So now what are they following? What are, all the, what are the wise men following? They're following Daniel's teaching, probably. They're following the star, and they're now following Herod's instructions that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah. So now they're following scripture, they're following a star, and they're following a tradition of the Magi. Notice here, the Magi keep seeking the king. First, they start with tradition. Then they see a star. Then they go to Jerusalem and they get more information. And that's what worshipers do. If you're going to worship the true God, you're going to keep finding all the information you can to keep getting God, to keep having God and to keep experiencing God and to keep worshiping God. You're going to do whatever it takes with whatever you learn to keep going. That's what they're doing because they're worshipers, because they're they're exhibiting here true worship. Now, what was the star? I could spend... 20 minutes on this, I'm going to spend 20 seconds on it, okay? The star is, well, maybe more than 20 seconds. The star is either natural or supernatural. The natural answers are it was a comet, which might make sense because at least according to the Chinese calendar, one pastor theologian said, according to the Chinese calendar, they date back to a comet in 5 BC, which is right around the time. Jesus was born about, you know, 4, 5, 6 BC at the latest, at the earliest, I mean, at 6 BC. So that could be it, a comet. Some people say the planets were aligned, and so there's a brighter light or a supernova. Those are the natural explanations. Could be. I tend to think it's more of a supernatural thing. If it's supernatural, and either one, it's fine. If it's supernatural, there's two options. One, it was, it's a star that God just kind of made to exist and then to disappear. That could be because it's shining down on a spot. It would be hard for a comet to really shine down on, on one house. Um, or some others say it's an angel. 
I actually think it might be an angel, but I'm not going to tell you why right now because we don't have time. You can talk to me about that after if you want. If we, yeah, okay. But, but I think it's a supernatural, it's a supernatural light caused by either a star or an angel shining, or first of all, appearing while they were in the east, and then appearing and leading them to Bethlehem, and then staying and then showing them the exact place where the Messiah was at that moment, crawling around or walking around barely with his first steps. Okay, so seek Jesus. If you're going to worship God, you need to be a seeker. You need to be a hungry, earnest seeker of God. So application, brothers and sisters, use what you know to seek God. Learn more to seek God better. I was thinking about uh, Jonathan Edwards says, study the scriptures assiduously. I like that word. We don't use that word today. Assiduously, very carefully and passionately and um, make it all-consuming where you study God's word, not just for Bible information, but so that you can enjoy Jesus, so that you can commune with the Lord and to taste and see that he is good. What does this mean for us as a church family? Let's be a community of earnest and hungry God-seekers. Psalm 63 says this. I want this to be the heart of our church family, every member of our church. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in your temple to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed i meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper i will rejoice in the shadow of your wings i follow close to you your right hand holds on to me that's a heart of a seeker may we seek the lord like that and if the wise men from the east are the wise men jews are they israelites ethnically ancestrally no they're foreigners what do we learn here that all ethnic people groups should seek God because he is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all ethnicities. And what, that, what does that mean for us? That means we need to be a missions type people that care about the nations, not just in other lands, other ethnicities here in our own backyard. And we need to display as a church ethnic harmony with one another, those who have different ethnic cultural backgrounds than we do. All right, even how we treat the Spanish church. They're another language group that shows that he's the king of all of us, Right? And so the way we love them and care for them, even as we partner with them, is important. If you're not a Christian, you need to know this. God has revealed himself to you partly. Just like he gave the Magi a little bit of information, he has given you enough information to continue to seek him. Here's the question. Will you seek him? Will you use what you know? Will you use what God has shown you in general revelation to seek him out? Because he's actually the true treasure that you were made for. Will you seek him? And for Christians and non-Christians, all of us together, here's a warning to you from Matthew 13, 12. To the one who has, more will be given to that one. But to the one who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. If you waste what God has given you, God can take it away. So you worship Jesus for the last two years, and then you just stop. You have no right to the grace to worship Jesus. To the one who has, more will be given. Keep seeking him, you get more. Get more grace, more desire, more passion, learn more knowledge, more experiencing of Christ, more love for God and love for others. But to what to those who have, or to those who have not, even if you do have some, you don't use it, you lose it. And you have no right to it. 
So that's a warning to you. Do not squander the grace of God given to you. Treasure it and live on it and use it to seek God even more. All right, so worship Jesus by seeking him. The last two points I told you are not as long. Secondly, so not only seek God's king, number two, honor God's king. Worship Jesus by honoring him. Now, verses 10 and 11. We only have three more verses here. Verse 10 says this. When they saw the star, what's their reaction in verse 10? They were what? Rejoiced. They were overwhelmed with joy. They rejoiced with joy overwhelmingly. Why? Because they've been seeking so long and you go hundreds of miles and now you're actually at the house and you see the star or the light shining down on that house. Man, their excitement must have been through the roof after this long trip, right? So they're super excited. They're so ready to you know, just barge in the door, but you can't do that here because it's the king, right? But you're so excited. They're overwhelmed with joy. So what do we learn from this? That we ought to rejoice in the Lord, right? We ought to rejoice in the Lord. They were rejoicing in the Lord. And not only, did they, not only were they overwhelmed with joy, what did they do in verse 11? Um, entering the house, they saw the child. Again, barely first steps, maybe walking for a few months. Um, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees... They worshipped him. They, they, they fall down to their knees and they, they bow down in submission, in subjection and humility and they exalt the child. This child is above us. We are beneath him. We bow the knee to him because he is exalted above us. He is over us. He has authority over us. This child that's barely walking has authority over us. He's the king. We are his subjects. We are his servants. And they prove that in verse 11 because right after they bow down and pay homage to him as king, again, I don't know if they fully understand that he's God. From the prophecy of Micah 5, 2, his origins are from ancient times. That would show that he's eternal, that he's not just a mere human. He is truly human. He is fully human. And yet he's not merely human. He is also God. And yet, I don't know if the wise men understood that. But uh, maybe, I mean, Daniel 9 talks about the son of man who's going to receive the kingdom. So maybe, um, or Daniel 7 does, but, but regardless of that, they, they worship him or they honor him and they pay homage to him. But as Christians, when we see them paying homage, we know it's more than just kingly homage to another human king. This needs to be true worship of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so they give gifts to him. They give gifts to this king. Now, the gifts they give, do you know why we say we three kings? Do you know why we call them kings? We, why do we say three, probably? Because they're what? Three gifts. We don't know if there's three. Why do we call them kings? Like in the hymn, We Three Kings. Here's my best guess on why they do it. I don't think they were kings, but, but Isaiah, 60 verse, verses, Isaiah 60 verses 3 to 14 has a long paragraph there. Let me read some highlights from Isaiah 60 because that's partly fulfilled here. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your radiance. So kings are supposed to come to the light. Then it says, they, in verse 6, Isaiah 60, they will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the Lord. Foreigners will build up your walls. So what do you have here? You have foreigners, the nations, the Gentiles coming and praising people. Even kings are going to come to praise this one, and they're going to bring gold and frankincense. So I think maybe some people say three kings. They maybe get that from here. Of Well, there's prophesied that kings would come. And, but it's not just kings, it's the nations. The Gentiles will come and bring gold and frankincense to honor the king of the Jews. And so maybe that's there. So what's some application here before we go to third point? Okay, honor God's king. If you're not a Christian, you need to honor Jesus as your king. You need to submit to him as king. You're saying, well, he's not my king. Well, 
He is your king. It's just whether you recognize him as king or not. It says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Now, you might say, PJ, I don't want to become a Christian. I'm just here because my friends brought me here or because I just kind of wandered in here. I don't even know why I'm here right now, but I'm thankful. We're thankful you're here. You might be thinking, Jesus is not my king. I do not want to submit my life to a, an old book with a bunch of old rules. Um, I, I want to be free. If I become a Christian, that's like putting on a straitjacket. I can't move anywhere. Like that's a moral straitjacket and life would be horrible if I became a Christian because I have to obey all these rules. I don't want these rules. I want to be free. I want to spread my wings and spread my arms. I want, to, I want to be free from this oppression. Well, Christians here have heard me say this answer, but if you're not a Christian or visiting with us, let me tell you, um, no one is really free. No one is really free. Everyone has a king. The only question is, who is your king? We, we actually are all free and slaves at the same time. We free ourselves from everything else to be enslaved to our one king. So some people free themselves from everything to be enslaved to their work. So they're workaholics and they neglect their family. Others are so enslaved to their family that they neglect their work, right? It could go either way. The point is to be free from everything else means to be enslaved to one thing, one priority, one king. Everyone has a king. The only question is, who is your king? I will tell you that your king, if your king is not Jesus, that king will betray you and crush you in the end. But if you trust in Jesus, who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, this king will forgive you of your sins, give you eternal life, and actually help you flourish. Because life as it was meant to live is to be lived under King Jesus. And so that is what I would invite you to do if you're not a Christian. For Christians, what's our application? They were overwhelmed with joy. They rejoiced in Christ. What should we do? Rejoice in Christ. So Shane and Shane sing. I don't think they wrote the song, but when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost and healed me to the uttermost, when I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around and how he set my feet on solid ground, it makes me want to shout, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. Just think about what God has done for you, what God is doing for you right now today, and what God will do for you when Christ returns. Rejoice in Christ. Not only rejoice, these, these wise men submitted to Jesus, bowed down. We need to bow the knee to Jesus. And so he's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages, almighty God is he. We're going to sing that right now. Bow down before him, love and adore him. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. Are you submitting to Jesus in confession only, but not with your life? Are you submitting to Jesus in action only, but not with joy and confidence in your heart? That God truly knows what's best for you? Brothers and sisters, the challenge is to submit to Jesus with joy and confidence, even though you don't have full understanding, which we'll talk about in our last point here. But and then um, one more thing here. What do, what do the three, what do the, not three, I keep saying three wise men. What do the wise men do? They give gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So what should we do? Give to the king and his cause. It says in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and, and honor and glory and blessing. But I, I was thinking about that. The lamb is worthy to receive riches. What does that mean? Doesn't Jesus own everything? Yes, and yet he is worthy to receive your riches. He is worthy to receive your riches. 
And so we give. It says all over the Bible, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each person should give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. I could say more and more verses, but I will not for the sake of time. Just know this, that we are to be giving to the cause of the kingdom of Christ so that the sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign of Christ through the gospel will spread throughout the world. Art Rayner addresses some excuses Christians make on why they don't give. Let me just say a few. I don't give because I don't make enough money. Art Rayner says, you feel like money is too tight right now and that giving is for those with surplus. But remember, in Luke 6, 21 to 20, or this is wrong, Luke 6, 12 to 14, we see Jesus commend a poor woman because she gave not out of her surplus, but out of her poverty. When the Bible talks about giving, there is no out. There are no loopholes or exclusion clauses. To the contrary, those who give out of sacrifice are celebrated more than those who give out of abundance. It's not just when you have a lot. Another excuse that R. Rainer addresses here is, I'm in debt. You feel like your first obligation should be to pay down debt. While, you're absolute, while, you're, while you absolutely should pay down your debt, giving still takes a priority. You should not let one bad financial de- decision, getting into significant debt, lead you to make another bad financial decision, not giving. It actually changes the way you manage your money when you give. It's a financial decision. Uh, last excuse here that Art Rainer says, my money won't make a difference. And then he says, you feel like your small gift doesn't really mean much to your church. As a former administrative pastor at a church, I can tell you that it really does make a big difference. It is amazing what God does when a lot of people give a small amount of money. He takes the gifts and multiplies its kingdom impact. People hear about and trust Jesus as their savior. Marriages are mended. Addictions are broken. The hungry are fed and all because you gave. So let us honor God with our rejoicing, with our submission, and with our giving. Lastly, so we worship by seeking, we worship by honoring, and lastly, we worship by obeying. And this is just verse 12. So the Magi were warned in a dream to go a different way. What, was, what did Herod say? When you're done, go back where? Go back to Herod in Jerusalem, right? The, uh, the dream says go somewhere else. Which one did they obey, Herod or the dream? The dream. And so what should we do? Obey for the sake of God's king. When they obeyed, they bought Joseph and Mary and Jesus more time to get out of Bethlehem before the slaughter comes, right? Their obedience led to the cross, in a sense. By their obedience, it bought enough time for Jesus to get away. Your obedience has great kingdom impact, and you don't even realize what you're doing when you obey. God doesn't explain to you all the implications and ripple effects of your obedience. He just says, trust me. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? Trust and obey. When you don't understand, you don't have to understand everything. Just understand that he understands everything. And that's enough because he's good. So obey God's commands like we tell our kids right away, all the way with a happy heart in the Lord. Obey when you don't understand the full picture because you almost never understand the full picture. Your job is not to understand the full picture. Your job is to understand what God is saying and to trust and obey him. And as a church family, what does this mean for us? Let us as a church family teach one another to obey everything Christ commanded us. That's the Great Commission. Teaching each other to observe, Matthew 28, 20, everything Christ has commanded. So let's teach each other. Let's speak into each other's lives as a church family. Let's humbly hold each other accountable as a church family. Because guess what? Members of Bethany Baptist Church, look up here. You have agreed and covenanted to teach each other. You have promised 
before God that you will care for each other and teach each other to obey. So don't hold back. You are responsible for each other, for your discipleship. So pray for each other, teach each other, call each other out, and support each other. Let's help each other follow Jesus, our King. And so this is what it all means to worship the King, to seek Him, to honor Him with our giving, with our rejoicing, and with our, um, what's the other one? Giving, rejoicing, and submitting, and we are to obey Him even when we don't understand everything. Why? Because Jesus is the King. He's the King of the Jews. He's the one who was born King of the Jews. He is the King, it says in Philippians 2, He is the King who humbled Himself by becoming obedient. He, he became obedient. He submitted And he went to the cross for our sins. In Matthew 27, they're going to start smacking Jesus around. They're going to beat him. They're going to put a a purple robe around him. They're going to put a crown of thorns on on his head. And they're going to bow down and say, just like the Magi here, they're going to bow down. And they're going to say, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! But they're not going to be doing it out of true worship. They're doing it out of mockery. When he hangs on the cross, there's going to be a sign posted above him. This is Jesus, the King of of the Jews. And the Jews are going to, the enemies of Jesus are going to say, take that sign down. He, make, change it. Make it say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Herod said, what I have written, I have written. Because what he wrote was true. Not only did he say he was the king of the Jews, he did say that. When Herod said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you say it. Yeah, you said it. You're right. And he is the king of the Jews. And he dies on the cross for our sins so that we can worship him so that we can become kings who reign with him. And he he becomes not only the king of the Jews, by the end of Matthew 28, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic people groups. Because he's not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Angelinos of Los Angeles. He's the king of the Southern Californians. And he's the king of the nations. And so we worship him by seeking him, by honoring him, and by obeying him. So brothers and sisters, I close with a question. Will you turn from your half-hearted, half-worship of Jesus? Will you turn from that? Will you turn from your non-worship of Jesus if you're not a Christian? And will you worship him by seeking him earnestly, honoring him joyfully, and obeying him carefully? That's the question. Will you do it? Will you worship him? If you don't, you'll continue to think you're worshiping Jesus while worshiping something else. Your delusion of worship, your delusion and your worship of other things will gain strength and grow stronger. And you will spread indifference and apathy in our culture of our church. You'll spread spread indifference and apathy to your family and to your community and to your neighbors. But if you seek God, if you honor God, if you go after him earnestly and obey him carefully, you will find Jesus and you'll worship and enjoy him deeper and deeper. You'll understand the Bible more and it will dwell in you richly. And you will help other Christians and even non-Christians see that Jesus is not just your king. He is a valuable king. He is a worthy king of great infinite worth, worthy enough maybe even for them to give their lives to. So let's worship Jesus, the king of the Jews and the king of all nations. Father, take this word and hide it in our hearts that we would not sin against you. Teach us to number our days. Give us a heart of worship. Forgive us for worshiping you with our lips when our hearts are far from you.
cleanse us, transform us, revive us. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.